The Critically Human channel explores the human experience around the world and throughout time, with topics that range from the search for beauty to the quest for power, featuring concerts, interviews, lectures, and cutting-edge research projects. Visit uctv.tv slash criticallyhuman. This talk, which um, when I received this invitation to participate today, I actually didn't know what I was going to present on. Uh, it was 2018 and particularly 2019, I, I started to really concentrate on this particular project and uh, I was thick into it and it culminated in a, in a talk to my department uh, just before Christmas 2019. And then in January 2020, I gave uh, a talk, actually this talk, to a conference uh, in neurosurgery, which had a emphasis that year on stroke medicine. And then two months later, I was put everything aside and I started researching the history of influenza and the uh, history of the 1918 um, influence in San Francisco and the mask mandates and the anti-mask league and everything. And I ended up writing a couple of articles on the history of vaccines and, and this anti-mask movement. And it pretty much occupied a lot of 2020 for me. So when I first got this invitation, I thought, well, it, you know, maybe I'll just continue that. But then I realized I was rather burned out with that. And now, today, exactly one year ago today, San Francisco issued the shelter in place. Uh, and so, you know, I said, that's really enough of that story for me. So put that aside, return to this uh, other research on the history of phasa and speech problems following neurological trauma. And it's the first time that I, my brain is reconnected to this. And so I reread the paper and I'm still rusty. I still am just the daunting task of diving back into all of the notes and figuring out what my crazy filing system was back in 2019. So again, thank you. And I appreciate the opportunity to return. So when I um, started working on this project a couple of years ago, I realized that I talk to myself. I even talk to myself in the third person. So sometimes, for example, when I hit a bad golf shot, I'll ask myself, what are you doing, Brian? But over many years of playing miserable golf, I've learned that the inner monologue I have, where I offer commentary on my performance, helps me to calm down. I actually came to consider it therapeutic. And indeed, I may have been right. According to a group of psychologists at Michigan State and the University of Michigan, if you saw an fMRI while I'm admonishing myself in this manner, it would look something like this. It seems that my tendency to talk to myself, which is called self-talk in the literature and is something that most people do, has become a subject of interest in neuroscience. In this recent article published in Nature, the Michigan team argued that this process demonstrates, quote, how a linguistic shift that promotes psychological distance from the self modulates emotional responses, leading to self-control. Whereas at one time muttering to yourself might have signaled senility or insanity, it's now seen as having therapeutic and mental health benefits. Indeed, the University of Washington School of Medicine provides a web guide to help its medical students practice this, saying that, quote, self-talk influences your academic performance and your well-being. Controlling your thoughts 
is the gateway to controlling your emotions and behaviors. A group of psychologists from Berkeley studied how self-talk allows self-distancing, what's called a fly-on-the-wall perspective of oneself that allows people to reflect on painful experiences without ruminating, underscoring the relevance of this process in cognitive therapy. If you objectify yourself, you know, pause and ask, what's wrong with you, Brian? It can help to isolate a traumatic event so they can be chiseled out in one's psyche and managed more effectively. Talking, however, does more than aid self-control or generate billable hours for a psychoanalyst. Philosophers and social scientists have long speculated that narrative, say autobiographical stories, create the self. I'll elaborate on this shortly, but to help paint a portrait of the problem that I will address today, I want briefly to point out how the self and language have been historically connected, because what I seek to investigate is what happens when stroke breaks this connection. The 17th century philosopher John Locke famously wrote in his essay concerning human understanding that self-identity, and this is often synonymous with sense of self, is created when a conscious being reflects on their own history through memories. The self is defined as the continuity of consciousness, a self-awareness that is mediated by memory. It's a thought process that is somehow materially configured in the mind. As a post-scientific revolution philosopher, Locke's theory was distinctively different than attributing self to the equivalency of an, of an immaterial soul implanted by God. Adding on to this new enlightenment understanding of self, narrative theorists posit that identity is primarily constituted in stories that recount past autobiographical events. Who we understand ourselves to be is not merely a recollection of random memories, but a logical reconfiguration and interpretation of them that creates a life history. And this story does not need to be spoken aloud. It can be formed from an internal monologue. Self-talk can construct identity. One can quickly see the problem that illness might pose to this configuration of self. A range of neurological disruptions can affect consciousness. They can affect the ability to recall memories, and they can affect the ability to construct stories. Some patients lose the ability to dream, and for others, their inner monologue is permanently silenced. What I'm going to explore today is how illness interferes with narratives of self in ways that might turn oneself into a disease. Because of the privilege we place upon language as a tool to define ourselves, we run the risk of mishandling that tool. But a deeper problem is what happens when that tool is taken away. To some, the existential crisis that illness may generate, progressive dementia and elderhood, memory loss with Alzheimer's, the loss of language following stroke, may be outside the reach of clinical medicine. Questions about self or identity may seem more relevant to metaphysics or religion, but in certain ways, there is direct clinical significance to thinking critically about language. In particular, the way that patients engage in dialogue with healthcare teams about states of health. 
Stories not only shape perceptions of self, but perceptions of illness. And this is crucial to assessing quality of life, which is recognized as an important outcomes measure in post-stroke recovery efforts. And the conceptual paradigms behind rehabilitation efforts continue to this day to refine notions of how communication shapes the inner self as well as the abstract way we connect ourselves to the world. While my talk will in part question the limits of language and the uses of narrative and illness identity formation, I acknowledge the irony that I too am telling a story and that my interpretation of these issues is constructed largely with words offered by patients, clinicians, and academics. So in foreshadowing my conclusion, I offer no immediate alternative to accessing and representing inner states of being. I am, in that respect, lost for words. But I do hope that by rereading the role of language or its absence in how we think about health and illness and identity formation, we can increase our sensitivity to the very tools we take for granted. Many of you probably will have come across my first patient. Dr. Taylor was a 37-year-old neuroanatomist who was building her career studying brain function, an interest motivated by her brother's schizophrenia. But then suddenly something happened. She would later write, quote, I was literally thrown off balance when my right arm dropped completely paralyzed against my side. And that moment I knew, oh my gosh, I was having a stroke. I'm having a stroke. And in the next instant, the thought flashed through my mind, wow, this is so cool. And this is Jill Taylor reflecting on her chance to study a disorder from the patient's point of view, her own point of view, and what she called a remarkable stroke of insight, which is also the title of her book describing the event. She suffered a hemorrhagic stroke right between Broca's and Wernicke's areas. Because of its location, her stroke affected both the production of language and comprehension. And for five weeks, she fell into what she provocatively called, quote, a pervasive and enticing inner peace. Dr. Taylor's self-reflection is unlike others who suffer stroke. It's not unusual, given the position of the hemorrhage, to have affected language or to lose the ability to track time, thus breaking her life into consecutive brief instances. What was unusual was how her stroke resulted in a new perception of her place in the universe. Quote, I morphed from feeling small and isolated to feeling enormous and expansive. I stopped thinking in language and shifted to taking new pictures of what was going on in the present moment. I was not capable of deliberating about past or future related ideas because those cells were incapacitated. All I could perceive was right here, right now, and it was beautiful. My entire self-concept shifted as I no longer perceived boundaries that separated me from the entities around me. A number of comments that she made would suggest that she had lost herself, at least in the framework of Lockean philosophy. She stopped thinking in language. She couldn't track time. There was no sense of past or future, only the present moment. Yet she doesn't say she lost herself. She says her self-concept shifted. 
And this perspective seems to challenge the role of memory and language in making meaning of one's life. She somehow found beauty in being part of a nonlinear universe. Dr. Taylor describes an eight-year journey to return to a clinically defined, fully functional status. But en route to this point, where she's able to give TED Talks about her experience, she wondered who she would be when and if she arrived at that point of recovery. And again, what was most unusual is her concern that she would lose what she had gained from the stroke. Quote, would it be possible for me to retain my perception of myself where I exist as a single, solid, separate from the whole without recovering the cells associated with my egotism? Most importantly, she says, could I retain my newfound sense of connection with the universe in the presence of my left, my left hemisphere's individuality? There's something perversely disquieting in the idea that this patient lost nothing more than some brain cells. That, to her view, the bleeding in her head gave life to a hemispheric individuality. Stroke stories are typically not about liberation. This is admittedly quite different from our conventional understanding of how people react in these situations. This is intentionally blank. I'm going to leave it there for just a few minutes. We are culturally conditioned to elevate the priority of language as a means of identifying a sense of self because of the role that we allocated to storytelling as a way of defining ourselves. Humanities and social science scholars, as well as clinical researchers, have drawn heavily on the role of narrative in processing the impact of illness on one's life story. For example, the psychologist Rick Cheston at the University of Bristol seeks to understand dementia as an existential threat to people. He believes in the power of stories to help heal. The creation of a story, he writes, quote, permits a world in which present dilemmas, uncertainties, and hopes can be lived through. Self-narratives create an opportunity for patients to recreate ideas in ways that help to explain the present. They're not just re-examining their life, they're rewriting it. That's the end of a quote from him. Many researchers who study degenerative diseases or neurological disorders pay close attention to the reaction against memory loss, as well as to language deficits. The underlying assumption is that without these, there is no unity to life. As the philosopher Sean Gallagher wrote in a 2000 article in Trends in Cognitive Sciences, quote, if I were unable to form memories of my life history or were unable to access such memories, then I have nothing to interpret, nothing to narrate sufficient for the formation of self-identity. We use words to tell stories, and in these stories, we create what we call ourselves. Today, there is no shortage of autobiographical literature on the experience of illness. The concern of patient advocates to battle stigma, the assembly of support groups, a relative ease of publication, online fora and social networks, all have created a community who want to hear from each other. Their stories, we're told, help others to heal. 
But what if patients who cannot speak? The condition I'm interested in is as old as Hippocrates, yet throughout medical history, there was no reliable vocabulary to talk about what was happening to a person who lost the ability to speak. There were names, alalia, aphasia, ephemia, all referring vaguely to the same condition, consciousness without presence, but no diagnostic discourse existed. In the absence of knowing what caused it or what caused stroke itself, and with no cure to talk about, it remained a curiosity to be observed. Some may know that when we speak of aphasia today, we're talking about a disorder of linguistic processing and that there are many diagnostic subcategories indicating particular deficits, such as comprehension or anomia, the inability to find the right words. There's even an associated condition called tip of the tongue syndrome. A staggering number of stroke patients end up with some degree of aphasia. Exactly how many is difficult to discern, but recovery is possible for some. The early 19th century French physician Jacques Lorda wrote one of the first comprehensive accounts of patients who were struck with aphasia. He published his account in 1843, though he was reporting on clinical observations over the previous decades. One of his cases described a visit to a priest who was thought to have suffered an apoplectic attack or a stroke. Quote, when I arrived, Lourdes wrote, the supposed apoplectic was seated on his bed, wide awake. He received me with a courteous and open manner. He seemed more concerned about me than about himself. I had come on horseback and the weather was bad. He made signs to indicate that I should first get warm and have a meal. This language, silent as it was, was sufficiently significant that everyone moved and obeyed. This prelude to a physical exam may seem anecdotal, but in fact it establishes a baseline that the physician will later use to assess the damage. Upon the introduction, the priest is civil, prioritizing his position as host over that of patient to the visiting doctor. He's offering hospitality in what is symbolically his own hospital, the residential quarters appended to the house of God. In fact, the priest is the epitome of a patient, embodying the meaning of the word as someone patiently enduring their suffering. But then the priest breaks down. When attempting to issue more instructions to his servants, he vocalized sounds that no one could comprehend. He became agitated. As Lourdes observed, quote, he showed his impatience by two very vigorous words, one of which was I, and the other, the most forceful swear word in our language, which begins with the letter F. The fact that the patient was himself a servant of God, whose last resort was shouting expletives, was a salient point for Lourdes. Quote, as he was a man of spirit and a priest, I thought he was ignorant of the meaning of the terms that he pronounced. Becoming impatient, the priest's ailment had caused a discrepancy between his authentic self and the profane self that was expressed through disease. 
It's as if he was possessed. He had lost that inner self-control. And in 19th century polite society, as the historian Roger Smith reminds us in his book, Inhibition, using reason to suppress the inner beast was regarded as the hallmark of civilization. Did this disease return us to some primitive state? Another question asked by nearly every stroke patient throughout history is, what did I do to deserve this? We should remember that the term stroke itself comes from a common sentence describing someone who was, quote, struck by the hand of God. An apoplectic fit was just the Greek term describing someone who suddenly falls to the ground as if struck with a thunderbolt. That a priest was the victim of God's punishing hand was somewhat of a moral, if not medical, mystery. The priest never fully recovered. However, in a curious change of events, the priest was later summoned to visit the house of the physician. This time, Lourdat himself was now the victim of a strike from God's hand. It was the summer of 1825, and Lourdat was not feeling well. Upon receiving a guest, he tried to offer a welcome, but remained silent. Quote, my thoughts were ready, he later wrote, but the sounds that should convey them to my informant were no longer at my disposal. Turning away in dismay, I said to myself, so it is true that I can no longer speak. And it's interesting to note that he could still talk to himself. He continued his auto observation with this quote. My impediment increased rapidly. Within 24 hours, all but a few words eluded my grasp. I was no longer able to grasp the ideas of others for the very amnesia that prevented me from speaking made me incapable of understanding the sounds. The effort of remembering each sound would have taken too much time and conversation is far too cursive to permit the understanding of a sufficient number of words. Inwardly, I felt the same as ever. This mental isolation, which I mentioned, my sadness, my impediment, and the appearance of stupidity, which gave rise to it, led many to believe that my intellectual faculties were weakened. When I was alone and wide awake, I used to discuss within myself my work and the studies that I loved. My memory for facts, principles, dogmas, abstract ideas was the same as when I enjoyed good health. Therefore, I could not believe myself ill. The impediments under which I suffered seemed to be no more than dreams. End quote. Lourdat wrote that he would sit in his study for weeks looking at the papers he was writing before the disease declared itself, but was unable to decipher written words. He lost syntax. But then one day he was sitting in his library when, like a camera pulling focus, the words on the spine of a book became crystal clear. He said, I could read exactly the title, Hippocrates Opera. The discovery made tears of joy come to my eyes. When Lourdes re recovered enough to write his own case notes, he extended his reflections to theorize about the relationship between language and thought. 
Of special consideration was the idea that language and intellect are one and inseparable. That language itself was the essence of human identity. Intellect being the distinguishing characteristic of humanity. This was a prominent idea at the time Lodot was writing in the 1840s. It was elaborated in the well-known writing of his contemporary Wilhelm von Humboldt. Language was not a symbolic representation of self. It was a direct expression of the inner self. Words were pictures of ideas. Language was also physical. Its functionality was located inside the brain. It's interesting to note that just a few months before Lerdat's aphasic episode, another French physician named Jean-Baptiste Bouillot published a paper declaring that he had located, quote, the legislative organ of speech in a particular lobe of the brain. This was proof, he said, of cerebral localization of mental functions in the new science of phrenology that Franz Joseph Gall created. And it was a claim that was later to inform both Paul Broca and Carl Wernicke. What troubled Lord that was how his loss of words was seen by others as a loss of himself. By definition, if one accepted the unity between language and intellect. For both a priest and a physician who identified themselves as following a vocation, a call from God to service humanity, their inner self was the same as their social or professional selves. In other words, Lourdes' sense of self was defined as being a physician, not someone who during office hours assumes the role of a doctor. Thus, what he was struggling to explain while trapped in splendid isolation, silenced by aphasia, was his ability to maintain his inner monologue while unable to speak or write a single medical term. While Lordat was, by his own admission, able to have abstract thoughts, a more severe type of aphasia not only stifles language, but cuts off comprehension. The words of others make no sense. It was with regard to this phenomenon that a half century after Lourdes' accounts, philosophers and physicians turned their attention. A philosophical train of thought reduced the essence of human nature to abstract thought, which was expressed to the world through language. Aphasic patients were interesting to philosophers and physicians alike because their pathology was somehow used as proof of something that we cannot see. The disappearance of language rendered visible the fragility of an inner abstract thinking that made humans themselves. In either a pre or post Darwinian world, language, an expression of abstract thought, is what distinguished humans from animals. The second half of the 19th century saw an interesting conjunction of linguistics, <clears throat> neuroscience, philosophy, psychology, and neurosurgery, all of which drew on each other to identify the link between language and selfhood. When patients who had aphasia following stroke died, their brains were dissected and areas of damage pinpointed, 
representing spots where ideas and words were thought to be located. Diagrams were drawn to portray an underlying order to a chaotic mental status. For some, the objectification of disease separates the damaged part from the otherwise normal self. But sometimes images can be so seductive it passes unnoticed that they provide only the facade of an answer to deeper questions that patients have when they ask, what has gone wrong with me? In the early 19th century, Lourdes had expressed his concern of being perceived as an imbecile because he lost words. At the end of the 19th century, the consequences for aphasic patients were potentially much worse. Aphasia was easily and often misdiagnosed as madness when with many stroke patients confined psychiatric wards. It was here in French asylums that so many aphasic patients were discovered that allowed pioneering researchers, including Paul Baroka, Charcot, and Freud, to gather enough clinical data to distinguish aphasia from insanity or dementia. And while I don't have time to go into it now, it was partly based on these early cases that Freud was able to develop his talking cure in early psychoanalysts. Nothing causes patients to become impatient faster than not being understood. The inability to express oneself, to lose language, yet to retain cognitive function is a form of pathological imprisonment. A connection to the world is lost, and that connection, we've been told for 200 years, is what gives humans their sense of self. The relief some patients have when they recover from aphasia following stroke, who can finally explain themselves, is appreciable. Consider this quote from a woman who was in speech therapy and expressed her desperation to explain to people why she wasn't speaking to them. Quote, I could not say the word stroke. I could not say that I had a stroke and I had to learn how to say stroke because I would say what happened to me. By way of concluding remarks, I want to remind us that the word disease means disease, not being at ease with oneself. From the patient's point of view, they're suffering not because of a thing that can be named, measured, or surgically removed. They're suffering because they no longer feel like themselves. Suffering loss of language is, I think, particularly challenging because of a deeply rooted cultural conditioning that claims language is more than a tool that might fracture. It's the essential connection between the inner self and the world around us. When studying the grief response and language loss, two-speech neuropathologists put it like this, quote, a person's psychological status cannot be separated from the neuropathology of speech and language. A psychiatrist named Scott Moss had a stroke which resulted in aphasia. As a clinician, he was compulsive enough to document the course of his recovery and he recorded many of his therapy sessions and conversations and wrote a book about his experience in 1972. He said that when he woke up in the hospital, quote, I could understand vaguely what others said to me if it was spoken slowly, 
I had lost completely the ability to talk, to read, and to write. I even lost, for the first two months, the ability to use words internally, that is, in my thinking. I had also lost the ability to dream. I lived in a total vacuum of self-produced concepts. Philosophers may ask, did he cease to exist? If one cannot self-talk, if one cannot comprehend the symbolism of communication or think abstractly, if one cannot dream, what is the state of being? What is the connection to the world? My broad area of instruction, the health humanities, asks us to pay attention to the patient's point of view. This involves using literary techniques like narrative medicine, life stories, and illness autobiography to amplify the voice of those who suffer. Yet, in our efforts to privilege the patient's perspective, these methods may inadvertently assert hegemony over non-narrative frameworks of being. It does not help those who lose language. Our ideas about the role of communication and the creation of selfhood are not exclusive to the domain of linguistics or neuroscience or philosophy. It's a multidisciplinary discussion that has yet to answer soul-searching questions that patients often have when struck with stroke. Perhaps it is so individualized that no dictates of natural science or biomedicine can be said to speak for all. We have to probe deeper to understand the existential crisis patients may suffer as a sequelae of stroke. But I hope that reflecting on the challenges of the condition might offer new insights to how we normally talk about living with illness or states of being.